Hello and welcome to A Little Perspective Podcast with Will Sigmund. I am joined today by two very special weather experts in their own right. I have my friend via Twitter and fellow North Carolinian, Nate Johnson, who is a meteorologist, and he has a long title that he's going to tell. He's been a lot of different things over the years, but what are you currently? Uh, current title is Director of Weather Operations for the NBC Universal owned television station group, which is a long way to say I work with meteorologists at about 40 television stations across the country making sure they've got all the tools, technology, and, and techniques they need to serve their audiences with the best weather forecasts that we can come up with. And we also have Carrot App Developer and uh, just Carrot, a few other apps. Brian Mueller, great to have you. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me on. I, I brought us all here together today because if you know me personally in my life, uh, you'll know that I kind of have always especially as I've gotten older, had a little bit of an interest and expansion of interest into weather and fascination with storms. And Nate, you and I were just talking a a second ago. And actually, before this episode, I was trying to think where that started. And I was thinking about it this weekend, and you'll remember this very well. Brian, I'm not sure if you are aware. uh, What state are you in? I'm in Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. Okay. Um, so in 1995, uh, Hurricane Fran, is that 95? Uh, 96. 96. Okay. 96. Uh, I was, I was a young, a youngin back then, but, uh, it was my, I, the first memorable kind of like weather thing that I can recall. And I vividly remember it. Uh, I think I was, I had to have been like eight, nine years old. And uh, I went to sleep one night, and at that point in time, we had a basement. When I woke up, I was in the pitch black, which uh, the bedroom in the basement did not have any windows. And so I was very confused. No one was around me. I'm an only child, and I guess my parents had already woken up. And I slept through the whole thing. But when I walked up the stairs from the basement and looked out, my jaw just dropped. Like, I had never seen anything like it and for it to have been on my own property that you know I I grew up on or was growing up on I mean there was tree after tree after tree that had snapped roots exposed power lines that were down roads that were blocked absolutely devastating storm to the the RDU area so that I think kind of started my fascination with storms and weather and that kind of thing. Nate, what is your memory of of that uh, incident? Well, you're in good company because a lot of meteorologists actually can trace their interest in weather and meteorology as a career going all the way back to some singular event. For me, it was a, a, a tornado in 1989, um, May 5th, 1989, out in Winston-Salem that sort of sealed the deal for me. I'd always been fascinated with it, but that sort of locked it in for me. Fran was another interesting one. I was in college at NC State, uh, and I was mad at it. You know, I you know, love the weather, but I was mad at the weather that night because Rush was debuting an album, Rush the Band, uh, was debuting an album, and it was playing on on WRDU uh, on Rockline, and they were you know, getting this via satellite, and the wind was buffeting the satellite dish, and so it was disrupting the connection. And so every now and again, it would blip out while I'm trying to listen to this you know, album I've been waiting for for 
however many years. So I was mad at that. And then, you know, when that was over, I said, fine, you know, go outside and you know, wander around. And, and I remember, you know, walking around taking pictures that night with a you know, 35 millimeter camera wrapped in a plastic bag. And then the next morning walking around campus and just looking at, at the, the tree limbs and in many cases, whole trees that had been blown over. Um, and then the, the, the thing I remember about that, there's so much, so much I remember about it, but one thing I remember was NC State's campus, despite the fact that it's it's not near anything. I mean, you think of, you know, oh, I live next to the hospital and we never lose power. Well, NC State's campus is not near any of that. There's a, a TV station and a strip mall and that's about it. And um, But we never lost power the entire time during Fran. And so for almost a week, NC State's campus was one of the only places where you could take a hot shower or get a hot meal, that sort of thing. And even when school started back the next week, you could tell the the students that lived off campus from the students that lived on campus by what they complained about. We on campus, the, the off campus folks complained about you know, not having had a hot shower. It's dark at their house, that sort of thing. And of course, it was hot and muggy right after Fran came through. So it was really just a nasty time. Um, those of us who lived on campus complained about not having cable. So... <laughs> <laughs> Those were, uh, you know, uh, weird days. But I remember one of the local uh, television broadcasters that I, I wound up working with later talked about how it was a blessing in disguise because his kids had never seen that many stars because there's so much light pollution now. And so when, uh, you know, the, the hurricane came through and blew out all the, basically knocked out all the trees and the power lines. And um, interesting stat from the morning after Fran came through of the however many hundred, almost a thousand stoplights in Wake County, which is the county where Raleigh is none of them were working the morning after wow. Frank came through. Um, and so he was talking about how, you know, they were, you know, his kids had never seen the Milky Way, had no idea there were many, that many stars out there. And so they sort of took it in a, you know, blessings in disguise sort of thing. But uh, that was a, that's a big event. And for a lot of people in North Carolina, a lot of people, you know, who've been in Raleigh a long time, that sort of their high watermark uh, in terms of a big disruptive weather, in terms of power being out for a long period of time, really disrupting the way we live our lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think our, uh, we did not live anywhere close to the city. You could, you could very loosely call it the suburbs back in the mid nineties, but, uh, it was, it was definitely on the outskirts of my neighborhood and we were without power for like, I don't, I really don't remember anything after. I just remember walking up and seeing the trees. Uh, that's the main thing that sticks out. But, um, Brian, how, how close to you? the coast were you? Uh, we're probably, uh, three hours away. Three hours it's about, away. It's two hours straight down I-40. And what's interesting was the hurricane more or less followed Interstate 40 from, made landfall near Wilmington and then basically paralleled Interstate 40 on its way, you know, up through Eastern and Central North Carolina. And at the time it crossed over RDU Airport was still technically a category one hurricane. Uh, wow. And plus it had been really wet in the weeks leading up to that. And so, um, that plus the fact that the soil here, when it gets wet, has the sort of consistency of pancake batter. And so just, you know, a few hours of these hurricane force winds was enough to knock down thousands and thousands of trees across really much of North Carolina, including here in Raleigh. That's crazy. Yeah. The, the stuff that I really remember about the weather from when I was young is being in Pennsylvania is more the snow. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a really big blizzard right around that same time. I think it was 96 where, uh, we had, we were out of school for, uh, over a week. Uh, the snow was so bad and 
in the last like 20 years, we haven't had snow anywhere near that bad. Yeah. Uh, this year was actually the first time we've had snow that more than a foot on the ground in at least since I, I got married in, in 2010. Uh, so this, the snow definitely isn't as memorable now as it was back when I was little. It, it hasn't even really, it, it snowed a sprinkle here in Raleigh this year, but it was, it's by far the, the non-snowiest year I can remember in recent memory. Usually we have at least like a one to three inch event for at least like a day or two. Um, but this year it was like, you better wake up early cause the snow is going to be melted by noon. <laughs> Uh, we had uh, we had one of those little spits of snow come through and it, it started snowing at like 11 o'clock at night and the kids have been sort of staying up i have four kids and we were waiting for it to change over and when it changed over we just suited them up in their snow gear and sent them out it's 11 <laughs> o'clock at night my kids are running around in the yard underneath the street like playing in the snow because it wasn't you know it was going to stop and wasn't going to last until the morning and um i i grew up in western north carolina so i have memory of you know certainly not big, big snows every year, but usually at least once a year, you'd get three, four, five inches. You get to get out of school for a couple of days, enough to sled in it and, and whatnot. And I want to make sure my kids at least have some memory of that. But unfortunately, it's 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 hard to come by around here. And with climate change being what it is, yeah. it's getting harder and harder for it to happen. Yeah. The last two years, we barely had like any snow, not even like an inch. And my daughter, she's three now, and she basically didn't get to, to play in the snow at all for the first two years of her life. But this year, at least, she got to make snowmen and, and do snow angels and stuff like that. So she finally got the experience. Awesome. Yeah, my niece is, uh, one is uh, three, almost four, and then the other one's just turned, uh, or she's about one and a half. So there's, there's I, I don't think that they really have a memory of snow very much either, because even last year, uh, it wasn't like a ton. I feel like maybe it was just a handful of days. And it's funny how a snow day these days, uh, post-pandemic, is not quite the same thing as it used to be for, for kids or adults. And it, it, it's just funny. Um, actually, you know, now that I'm solidified and working from home, I was actually even more disappointed because it's like you get to enjoy the snow without having to worry about the commute. And mm -hmm. it's, And it really let me down this year. <laughs> uh, so maybe maybe we'll see uh, next year, see what happens. But I, I do remember too, Brian, I know that it would have been 1998 was like the three foot snow. Is that correct, Nate? I'm getting you to fact check me here because uh, uh, you're the expert. Around here in Raleigh, I don't know that we've had that much at once. Our, our, we had a snow in 2000 that gave us 20 inches. Maybe uh, that's that what, may what you're of. thinking of. Yeah, I, but I remember I had I had orthopedic surgeries in Maryland, and whenever it happened, I, I guess it was 2000. My dad and my dog they were still home, and my mom was with me in Maryland for like this checkup appointment, and that was when the snow came, and I was just so bummed out. My dad got this picture of my dog, who's probably like a medium-sized dog. And all you can see is just like the tip of her tail walking <laughs> through the snow. And I was like, man. And all my friends were talking about how fun it was to sled. Because we, because we were in kind of a rural-ish neighborhood, it was a good sledding neighborhood. You didn't really have to worry about cars. And there were some good hills. And so I was kind of, kind of bummed out about that. But, yeah. you know, got to experience some more snows here and there afterward. But, uh. 
Yeah, so Brian, you know, you're the creator of, of Carrot, my favorite weather app. I mean, it's just a jack of all trades. And one of the things I really love about it that I don't think I've found in any other app is being the weather nerd that I am. I happen to tap my weather station and I'm able to hook that into your app without having to use their app, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if a lot of people will even know that. Um, but what what inspired you to to make care? Is there like was it a frustration? Was it you know what what kind of things led to the creation? Well, Carrot Weather is actually uh, the fifth app in like a series of Carrot apps, and so it started out as a to do list, and then there's like an alarm clock, a uh, fitness app, uh, a calorie counting app, and and then the uh, and then the weather app, and so with the the original uh, Carrot to do list, the the whole impetus behind that was uh, wanting to to create a to-do list that was fun and engaging and kept you coming back uh, and using it and not just giving up and and not actually completing all of your tasks. And uh, a lot of the the apps at the time that had like any kind of personality to them at all were just like really fun or, or really uh, positive and happy and like it was just too much for me and i really liked the idea of making like this sarcastic snarky app that that made fun of you and yelled at you and the the whole name carrot comes from uh the whole carrot versus stick approach and so the idea with the to-do list was she would reward you for getting stuff done and punish you and, and yell at you and make fun of you if you were slacking off and not checking your stuff off your to-do list at a reasonable rate. And I, I had no idea how people would respond to the app when I put it out. I thought it'd get like uh, 30 downloads, and that's what it ended up getting on it, its first day on the App Store. It was just like friends and family, and that was it. And uh, But it slowly uh, picked up momentum over the course of the first few weeks and putting out updates and the press started to pick up on it, and from there, I was able to uh, to to make other apps in, in the series and just sort of expand uh, the the brand. I guess you could say I don't really think of it as a brand, but uh, just this crazy thing that that I built that I get to uh, that I'm lucky enough to to keep working on. Um, but I I, w- I wasn't a programmer going into this. I basically taught myself how to to uh, build iOS apps, and with, with each of them, I basically taught myself something completely new. Uh, so, like with the to do list, it was like how to build a list and store the data on a phone. And then with the when I got to the weather app, I, I'd never really done anything with like data APIs or doing any like kind of real networking requests. And that was one of the things that that I really wanted to to try and figure out how to do when I, when I got to the weather app. And it was really just a, a coincidence that I settled on making a weather app my my next app. Um, I, I was just looking for something where I could add like fun funny jokes to, and and. <laughs> I, I just thought that uh, weather was sort of like the perfect fit for that because you'd be able to write jokes about like each different weather condition 
and uh, the, the time of day that the person's opening the app or like holidays and stuff like that. It just gave me so much uh, room to, to make the, the app into some kind of entertaining uh, weather app that would make you keep coming back to it and sort of like carrying on uh, all the stuff that I built into the other weather, in, into the other carrot apps. And yeah, so it was basically just a, a coincidence and it ended up becoming very successful and it became like my main app, the, the one that I focus on basically entirely now. That's awesome. I love how it quite literally started off as a joke mm-hmm. in, in some aspects with it being your fifth app. Obviously, you know, it kind of you evolved and eventually got to it. And I know you said it's your main app right now. It's it's award winning, correct? Yeah, it's it's one of several awards. Yeah, I, and it's I see it constantly featured on, um, you know, sometimes Apple's uh, conference or keynote stages, and I mean that's that's gotta feel awesome when you see that. Yeah, you know, it's funny for me. Uh, I I appreciate the humor, but it's not what keeps me coming back to the app. Um, I typically have mine on No Sark, um, but that's only because there's so much more to it and I find that it's, it's, I, I, I try a lot of apps for a lot of different things <laughs> and, and weather being one of my like interests, there's a lot of times where I'm like, okay, let me try this. Let me try this. Let me try this. And carrot is always the one that I've, you know, stuck with tried and true. Um, and you recently had a redesign, which is, I really like a lot. And uh, you even added my favorite thing you added recently is the uh, timeline view. Um, I know that was in beta for a while, and I think it was just released recently mm-hmm. um, on the widget. Uh, it's great to see, like, at a glance. And I don't know why that's just, like, the way my brain processes it uh, the quickest. But it has radar. It has multiple, you know, data um, pinpoints that you can add in the background. Um and it has so much customization, even more now with, you know, the new the new uh, redesign uh, with 5.0. And I don't know, it just uh, it just has way more to offer than any other ones I see out there. And I'm a proud um, uh, ultimate premium, whatever the highest tier is, subscriber, <laughs> um, and have been for uh, a few years, however long you've had it. Um, what I mean. I know that you kind of just explained the background. Do you feel like you have uh, a personal passion for weather in a way, or do you just feel like this ended up being successful? So it's what I'm focusing on and I like to add jokes to it or whatever. Do you, do you find that you're just as excited about weather stuff or how do you feel like these days when you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in weather, but never had like any kind of urology background or anything like that. And basically, I've just been teaching myself a lot of that stuff as I've gone along. Uh, but I, I mean, it is funny that it re- that care really did start out as a joke. The the 1.0 version of the app was literally just um, just the jokes and a, a very basic. Uh, current conditions, hourly and daily forecast, uh, and you could tap to see a few more details. And that was basically it. 
but because the the app became uh, so popular, I was able to invest a ton of time into it. And uh, it's basically just, it's almost like it's two different apps. It's like, there's, there's the, the snarky, like, like the fun entertaining side. And then there's another app customer base or, or whatever that is the entirely professional side. And there's definitely like users that overlap and, and really like both, but it's cool to get to have basically two different things that I can, to, can play to. And like, if I get bored with doing one thing, I can focus on the other. And, uh, but, and I, I definitely think that that's one of the things that, that makes carrot really unique and is that it has this like fun aspect, but it, can also really uh, cater to a really professional market that wants like the customizability and all the different data sources and and all the 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 really great Apple Watch features that I've built into it. Mm-hmm. I I really think that it was the Apple Watch that really made me uh, focus in on on the professional side of things because the Apple Watch app came out or the Apple Watch came out, uh, I think like three or four months after carrot weather version 1.0 came out. Mm -hmm. And because the screen is so tiny, uh, you, you can't really fit in like all the graphical, like elements and all the animations and all that kind of stuff that I had built into, to the iPhone app. And so I had to focus much more on just building a really good weather app as opposed to just like a really like entertaining, crazy app. And it just adding like a couple small features on there that were more professionally oriented, then people just started asking for more. And one of the things that I really like doing is just like a lot of app developers don't like to add all these like different settings and all these different views and all that kind of stuff. They, they just want to have like one... And, and Apple does this to, to agree too. They don't want to have a ton of settings and cater to pro users that have like all this customizability. Uh, they just want to make things really simple and cater to the broadest market possible. And everyone else is just stuck with those, those basic settings. And I like to, to offer all these different options and find a way to do it in a way that doesn't make the app too complicated and impossible to use and and do it in a way that makes it still look nice and have a, a great design. And I just find that to be like a really fun challenge, figuring out how to do that. It's a huge challenge and you absolutely do a fantastic job of it. And, you know, I'm, like I said, I've been using it for several years and I've seen the evolutions and things. And I don't know if it's just happens to be because it's weather. Uh, but normally I'm a fan of simplicity, but in the case of like your app, it's almost like it is simple, but the customizability is, is really something I crave. I think particularly in certain uh, topics of my life and weather being one of them, I don't know. Just, there's a lot of aspects to weather and different things that I think different people are interested in about weather. Mm-hmm. And so it really is nice to have that customization. And, um, you know, as far as the, the joke side, you were super on it, by the way. Uh, what's the fastest you've ever put a joke in? Cause you're, you're, you're like South Park. You just, you're like 
the same day something happens, you'll see it in your app. Uh, I joke about it sometimes. Yeah, that was one of the fun things I added a couple of years ago was that I, I built in a way to uh, manually update the jokes that are in the app. Basically, like as soon as something happens, uh, the, the app can call out to, to my servers and, and check to see if, <laughs> if there's like new dialogue in there. Uh, so it, it's really fun to, to get to like, I have like all the, the news notifications coming up on my, my phone and my iPad. And I just try to, to stay, uh, looped in on, on that kind of stuff and, uh, and try to think of something funny <laughs> for, yeah. for stuff that's going on. That's not going to be like too offensive or yeah. So, so that, that's definitely fun. Yeah, it, it's, it is. And I really enjoy I still see the stuff, even though I don't necessarily have it turned on on my phone. I have lots of uh, friends that use it, and they'll either post screenshots or I'll see something on the subreddit or you know something like that. Um, so thank you for uh, explaining a little bit about the background there. Um, so maybe kind of shifting topics a little bit, uh, and, and back over to you, Nate. Um, we had what I feel, and I mean, it is a fact, an unprecedented hurricane season. Uh, this past year to the point where we had to go. I think it was, uh, I was asking you like, what happens when we run out of names? And <laughs> you were saying, oh, well, we switched to the Greek alphabet, uh, which has since been retired, I understand. And um, uh, you want to talk a little bit about just your experience in the last year and how you think it impacts the future and what you think it says about the climate or anything like that. I mean, we don't have to get too political or anything like that, but you know, just your, your general thoughts and opinions as a meteorologist. Yeah. I mean, this past hurricane season was nuts. I don't know if there's any other way to describe it. Uh, and I, there was a stat that was put out late, late last year showing that basically every inch of coastline from the Mexican border, Texas, all the way to Florida and all the way up to, um, at least Boston, if not all the way to Maine, had been under some sort of hurricane-related watch warning advisory thing, whatever, uh, over the course of the hurricane season. And we have stations, our station group uh, includes stations from McAllen, Texas, all the way up to Boston, and, you know, New York, Philadelphia, Miami, uh, Houston. So we've got stations in all of these places, and we had a lot of them um, be affected, including with, um, you know, our stations in the Northeast in Boston and, and Hartford and New York got affected by hurricane Isaias, which was a really big windstorm for them. By the time it started racing up the coast, they had, you know, high winds, plus they had some tornadoes and that sort of thing out of that. So it really was, you know, an interesting, uh, you know, challenge to work with all of our stations. And, and again, some of them are in English language and some of them are Spanish language. Mm. Um, and so, you know, working with all these different meteorologists, these different audiences and the different tool sets that they've got, to help them package the weather story. So there's, you know, there's weather data and then there's a forecast that, you know, we can drive out of that. And that's what you get a lot of times in, in various apps, whether it's carrot or our station apps or dark sky, or just the, you know, the, the default app that comes with the phone and you get the, the basic forecast and where, we feel like we come in and the, the role that we play is helping to take all of that information and, and really help make it actionable uh, to people and helping them to turn these numbers and these trends and everything. Well, what does this actually mean? So for example, 
you know, as we record this, it's it's you know late March. We've got a big cold front coming later in the week, and probably going to have a, a frost, if not a freeze, uh, for a couple of days. So talking about what does that mean, and you know, if you've got plants of a certain size, or if you did some planting earlier in the year, you know, earlier in the season, what you know, what do you need to know about that? And, and really taking that weather information, whether it's just basic frost freeze type stuff, or whether it's something more interesting like a hurricane, taking all this weather information and, and translating it and packaging it in a way that's meaningful for people who are not weather weenies, right? You know, we talked the, the conversation about. Uh, you know, customizing apps and that sort of thing. I think, you know, by and large, I would imagine the vast majority of the people that are doing heavy customization of an app like Carrot are your very weather interested folks. Whereas we're much more willing to sort of just roll with the defaults with apps that aren't quite in our core interest zone. Um, And most of the people that are watching a television newscast on any given night or any given morning probably not weather weenies. They probably just want to know, do I need an umbrella to get to work today? Do I need to, you know, cancel soccer practice this afternoon because it's going to rain? Do I need to bring things in because it's going to be windy and we're going to have storms come through? Those kinds of things. Um, all of that's there. I mean, it's in the forecast, but, you know, I want that sort of human touch or, you know, something, somebody to help me sort of digest this process that, and uh, and make, make heads or tails of it in a way that's meaningful for, you know, for my lives. And also, when you've got big events like hurricanes and tornadoes talking about the life-threatening stuff um, and again, helping to, to localize that, to focus it and to, you know, give that human connection that I think a lot of people crave, uh, you know, when it comes to that. And, and we view, um, you know, we, all of our stations have apps that have, you know, radar and forecasts and all this other stuff. You get forecast clips and all this other stuff in there. And we really look at, what our apps do and what our television, the stuff we do on TV is being complementary of each other um, and making sure that we're building, you know, building these things to work together, not to work apo- work against each other. Because uh, I think there's value in in both of these, you know, approaches for getting weather data out. But sometimes folks want to be able to turn on and have a comforting voice to say, you know, we're going to get through this together. You know, we've got storms. This is what it's going to be like. And then, you know, we'll get through it. And we'll take care of each other when it's over. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting and and uh goes to show kind of why i i prepared you guys up to come on the episode you you both you know brian while your while your app is customizable to the nth degree you you don't have to and you know when you turn on the the tv it's it's all about that uh ability and that fine dance between getting too technical and being uh humanistic and really sometimes empathetic to the audience and understanding like, Hey, not everybody's cares. Like you care. Yeah. When I, when I get excited about something and my wife will tell me this all the time, she's like, you know, not everybody thinks like, you will. come on, like not everybody's going to be excited like you about X thing. And so that's something that I always have to like reel back. And I'm sure that you, you know, designing an app have to think about, and we even talked about it in my first episode with, with Mike Rundle, just designing with empathy. And then, you know, when you were not only yourself talking about the weather, Nate, but uh, sharing it with, with other stations and making sure that it probably even regionally, you know, you have different uh, things that affect the region. more. For, uh, people, people in the Northeast aren't going to be as uh, scared of snow as people in Florida, let's just say. 
um, you know, people that are more used to X thing and people in Florida aren't going to be as scared as a hurricane as, you know, people in wherever. Um, but you, you, it's interesting you talk about that because that's one thing that we've, we have to be cognizant of, especially with our, our Spanish language stations or Telemundo stations. Um, because in a lot of cases, the audiences they're serving are first and second generation immigrants. Mm -hmm. Um, they may be very recent immigrants within the last few years. Um, and they may be coming from parts of the world where the particular type of weather where they are today isn't what they grew up with. So and, you know, a good example of this is, um, you know, a lot of folks moving up to uh, New York, for example, uh, a lot of the Spanish language population is from Puerto Rico. Well, you don't get a lot of snowstorms in Puerto Rico. <laughs> um, and so our meteorologists with our Telemundo station, when there is snow or any sort of frozen precipitation in the forecast, there's an extra emphasis on making sure that we're preparing those audiences and not assuming that they come to the table knowing all of the vagaries of the, the types of weather that you get in the tri-state, but actually helping them understand you know, what's coming and how it's going to affect them and how that might compare or contrast with the weather that uh, they might have, have come from. And, and what's interesting is that different parts of the country tend to draw immigrants from different parts of the Latin or the Spanish speaking world. And so obviously in, in Florida, you get a lot of the Caribbean, a lot of Cubans. In Texas, you have a lot more immigrants from different parts of Mexico. Um, and in some places like in the Northeast, it may be more, you know, a Caribbean or Puerto Rico, or it may be, you know, Mexican it may be just different parts, but all of these people have different, there's different types of weather. Mexico, you can get severe weather. You can get snowstorms in the mountains. You, you have some exposure to that. You typically, you know, it's more just tropical weather, flooding and the occasional severe thunderstorm in the Caribbean and making sure that you're speaking to all of those audiences. And it, it sort of goes back to that, that adage from our communication studies classes back in middle school and high school. It's all about, you got to know your audience first and then, understand part of knowing your audience is understanding what they bring to the table and what they need from you. And in some cases that may be different from, from day part to day part, you know, somebody watching in the morning wants something different than audiences in the afternoon and maybe different than what folks expect in the early evening. Audiences on the weekends have different demands. And obviously you're going to have some different demands between English language stations and Spanish language stations, even in a given market, just because of the demographics and the profiles of the folks that make up those audiences. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, we're trending towards more bizarre weather events slash uh, severe hurricane seasons, et cetera, like we've experienced this past year going forward? It, it's interesting. I think the the global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it, I mean, it's it's happening. I mean, we know this. We can see this in the data uh, very consistently. And what's we're trying to figure out still is what does this mean for the future? And the modeling, you know, the history of the modeling and the science here has led us to believe that in the short term, in sort of the you know five to fifteen to, to thirty to fifty year period we may have more extreme weather, especially in parts of the United States where we're affected by you know, the jet stream. And in the winter time, when you have certain types of events, sometimes you'll get the jet stream to wobble a little bit more. That's consistent with an overall warming pattern that we've seen over the last couple of decades. But over time, this is eventually going to trend toward less exciting and simply more almost subtropical weather across much of the eastern two-thirds of the United States, where you're not going to have as many 
shots at wintry weather or snow, and it's going to be more periods of heat, periods of drought, or in some places, periods of extreme rain, where the places that are already wet tend to get wetter. The places that are already trending dry are already starting to get drier. And we're actually seeing that a little bit in the uh, in the central part of the United States. Used to be that roughly the the 100 degree line of longitude uh, was about the the edge of the western extent of where you could really grow stuff, and then to the west of that it was too dry, and again eventually it gets too mountainous to really grow a whole lot other than sort of native uh, stuff in terms of agriculture and stuff to eat. Uh, and we're starting to see that line shift to the east a little bit, and so it's actually you know we're seeing drier weather and more sort of semi-arid conditions farther to the east as the climate has changed. What we don't know as much is how this is going to affect hurricane season, how it'll affect different types of severe weather. We know that there's a branch of science called attribution science where we're trying to look at an event and piece out how much of a particular event might have been due to climate change. And when we do that, we're doing that in a probabilistic sense. It's it's very likely that this particular event was made X percent worse by climate change or not. And there's a the American Meteorological Society puts out a, um, a state of the climate report every year and, and they try to go into this. And I, one of the things that was really surprising to me was, you know, there are a lot of events where they can, you know, there's a theoretical understanding. We can run some models and we can tweak, you know, certain settings to try and get a sense of, you know, was this more likely to happen because the planet is warmer now than it was, you know, 50 or hundred years ago, that kind of thing. There are many events where they, they can't find that connection, but there are far more, especially the extreme events where we can, or we can not only connect it in a model sense, but also with a theoretical underpinning. And that's where we're trying to figure out that. So now applying that into the future is that much harder are we likely to have stronger hurricanes, for example, or more frequent hurricanes or more frequent landfalls? And unfortunately, we just don't really have enough data. The theory says that a warmer world, a warmer atmosphere will be able to support more water vapor, which would have more latent heat and potentially would raise the, theoretically raise the high end of what the worst hurricane that the Atlantic basin might be able to support in a given year. Uh, We don't know that for sure. We don't know whether 2020 as a hurricane season was a, an outlier um, or taken together with 2005, the last time we went into the uh, the Greek alphabet, whether these are sort of markers toward more frequent, uh, you know, hurricane, more frequent hurricanes, more frequent landfalls, that sort of thing. The theory suggests there might be something there. The data doesn't really say that yet. Um, it may never say it. We just, we just don't know. Um, but at the end of the day, we sort of go back to, you know, pull it back to what does this mean for somebody who lives along the coast or is planning a beach vacation? And it really just boils down to it only takes one. Um, the, the one hurricane that everybody talks about in Florida from 1992 was Andrew, was the first storm of the year. And had we stopped, had we had no more storms that year, we would still be talking about the number one storm of that year. It only takes one. Wow. Do you think I don't? I'm trying to understand uh, when you're talking about the the water vapor rising, et cetera. Are you saying that gives way for a more intense hurricane or less? Could be more. More. So, so do you think that yeah. we may be looking at like in a new category, possibly? 
not the way the Saffir Simpson scale is built. It's sort of, you know, category five is 157 miles per hour plus. So it's everything from there, you know, higher. So there is no sort of category six type storm. Um, but you can get some very, you know, high in and intense storms. And we actually see that in the Pacific Basin uh, where we sometimes have warmer water temperatures. The atmospheric conditions can be a little bit more favorable um, out across the, the Western and Central Pacific. So you can get some really, really high-end typhoons, super typhoons. Same thing as a hurricane. It's just what they call it in the yeah. Pacific. Mm -hmm. And it's not uncommon for us to have one or two a year where you might have, you know, winds 150, 160, even up to 200 miles per hour maximum sustained uh, in that part of the world. It's possible that we could see the Atlantic trend in that direction as well. Again, it's, it's all about, you know, we're pumping energy into the system and the climate, is, the, the greenhouse gases are not allowing that to get radiated back out to space. So it gets sort of reinvested in the system, leads to warming ocean temperatures. And that's the big threshold for hurricanes. If you have warm enough you know, ocean water and then the other atmospheric conditions are favorable, then you can get a hurricane to form. Well, if the temp water temperatures are warmer, all other things being equal, you're probably going to have more and or more intense hurricanes. And there's been some modeling work and some theoretical work done out of MIT and other places that have spoken to that. But we don't, you know, we really want to have more data before we can make, you know, we can model things to death, but we'd like to have a little more data to try and track trends. And we really have only been able to monitor the whole of the Atlantic Basin since the 1950s. Because before that, in a lot of cases, the only way that you'd know there, there was a hurricane out there is because you sent a boat and it didn't get to where it was going. Uh, because we didn't have satellite. We don't have weather stations. We didn't have a lot of buoys out across the open ocean. Well, now that we've launched hurricane or we've launched satellites, we can monitor the hurricanes and we can see them every day, every hour, in some cases, every 30 seconds, uh, and to see how they're forming and where they're going. So our period of record is not very long and they are by their nature, fairly rare events anyway, because you might get some years, you might have five or 10 and others, you might have 20 or 25. We'd like to have more data before you can, really draw any real conclusions. But the, the theoretical work here is is troubling because it certainly paints the picture that there's a possibility that we could have more of these things. Um, and you really only need one uh, mm -hmm. to, to ruin your day. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, and do you, do you think that as a society, you know, I, this is maybe a little bit anecdotal, that we're doing things to help uh, shift us back the other way? Um, things like or and or maybe even just to prepare ourselves for a world like that uh do you do first of all do you see one or the other more frequently and do you think that we can what can we do as an individual person or whatever to help prevent that i'm assuming we want to prevent it yes um, <laughs> so you know what what can we do well, we'd love to prevent it. Um, unfortunately, some of the change has already sort of been baked in, right? You know, from decisions that have been made cumulatively by all human beings going back, you know, decades to, you know, hundreds of years. Uh, but there's, if, if you couldn't have started before, the best time to start is today. Uh, it's like that old Chinese, uh, Chinese proverb, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is right now. Mm -hmm. So I think we, we are things that we can do as a society and as individuals, um, you know, to reduce our carbon footprint, to be more thoughtful and to re you know, recognize that we're all connected here on this planet and there is no, there is no other planet right now. I don't know if you've seen any of the pictures from the Perseverance rover. Really cool we got it on Mars, 
I don't want to live there. Uh, I rather like here. Thank you very much. So we want to try and do what we can to protect the planet that we've got. And that, you know, everything from, you know, just driving less, uh, taking public transit when you have the option, um, you know, settings on your air conditioning and heating when you're at home. I mean, all these things that we've heard about for years. And one thing that we noticed was, you know, when we had the pandemic, um, when things started really locking down and people stopped going to work and we were really sort of living out of our houses for the, you know, we saw noticeable improvements in things like CO2 concentrations and in the concentrations of other pollutants that can cause their other health problems on top of potentially, you know, contributing to to, uh, climate change. So we know we can do this. We know this is something that we can make meaningful change. It's a matter of, of just making those sort of conscious, you know, intentional steps initially and doing them over and over again until they become habit. And then, you know, building on that from year to year. And, and, you know, my job pre-pandemic required me to travel fairly extensively just to visit all these stations. Obviously, a lot of that can be done, you know, with technologies like what we're talking about now with, you know, uh, video conferencing and that sort of thing. And that's great. But when you do travel, thinking about, uh, you know, taking the most direct route, using public transit when that's available. Um, one of the things I, I sort of challenge myself to do when I go to, you know, new cities um, is to find ways to not have to rent a car and to not have to take an Uber or a Lyft or a taxi. Mm. Um, I've gotten DC figured out. Uh, Brian, you're, you know, near Philadelphia. I love Philly as a place to visit because they've got the train station right there at the airport. Mm-hmm. So I get off the plane, go ride the train straight into Center City. And then it's a it's a literally a block walk to the office location, and then another two blocks to the hotel. So I don't have to get if get it, do a car or anything like that. I can take public transit, and and it's fun. It's a challenge, and I think it's a great way to to learn a new city. Um, I grew up thinking that you know, I, I we didn't do public transit other than just the school bus. We just didn't have it because we were far enough out of town. Um, and so going to places like uh, we have a station in in uh, the Los Angeles area, a couple of stations in L.A. And, um, I had no idea that LA has a Metro until I got to ride it a couple of years ago. And then they've got bus service on top of that. And it's just, it's a fun way to explore a city to get to know it. And it's also helping to cut down on carbon footprint because I'm, you know, taking the trains that are already running. Awesome. I appreciate that. Um, I have a question for both of you and Brian, I'll start with you. And, uh, I don't want to put you in a spot where you feel uncomfortable. So don't answer this if you feel like it will, um, if it will do that, but uh, obviously there are a lot of different uh, data sources that you can use with Carrot, and uh, unfortunately, Dark Sky. Well, unfortunately for you, Dark Sky was uh, purchased by Apple, and I get. I think they're shutting off when, like, the summer, June thirtieth. Uh, actually, the end of the year. End of the year. Okay, so the end is nigh uh, for Dark Sky. Now, didn't mean to rhyme there, but um, what is your go-to data source uh, these days, whether it be within your own app or elsewhere? Uh, I mean, I, I I actually use a bunch of different ones. Uh, I, I really like uh, one of the things that I built into the app uh, recently was just being able to uh, long press on the, the weather tab and quickly be able to, to switch, jump between the different sources and compare them. Oh, and uh, I, I really like the, uh, from my area in particular, because each data source is 
is really good in, in certain areas mm-hmm. and not so great in others. And it just varies based on like whether they have uh, weather stations nearby, just the different models that they use, whether they're good for that area. Um, I'll, pretty much all of them are, are really good for my area. They're all really close to each other. So like AccuWeather, Climacell, Forica, Aris, they're, they're all very close to each other in, in my area. And so I, I don't really have one particular favorite. Um, some of their APIs are definitely better than others and more fun to deal with than others. <laughs> uh, but but I, I don't really have any one particular favorite for my specific area. Is there a, a resource that someone listening to this elsewhere in the country could go to figure out what their best um, one There's- would be? There's a website that uh, called a Forecast Advisor that uh, it's uh, U.S. only, but uh, they they download data from a bunch of the different weather data sources, and then I, I think that they compare it to uh, actual observations to to rank them uh, based on how close they got to to the actual observations, and that that's pretty useful. For, they don't have all the data sources. Uh, on there that I have access to, but uh, it, it definitely helps to to see like where what percentage they're they're getting uh, stuff accurate. Cool, yeah, that's great. Uh, try to remember to put that in the uh, show notes here. Okay, and Nate, how about you? We, for the most part, we're relying on our meteorologists at our individual stations in each market. I mean, the one advantage we have is that our apps are really focused for a particular audience. And so if you download, and I'll use Philadelphia as an example, since Brian's near there, the NBC 10, uh, you know, app, it's got weather built into it and you're getting a forecast that is uh, generated by our meteorologist at NBC 10 in Philadelphia. And we're using, we're starting with a lot of the raw data sources, computer models, um, some the weather services, you know, forecast is in there in the mix as well. They're going to come out with their 10-day forecast and key that into the system. And that's essentially what you're going to get if you're in the Philadelphia area. Outside of that, you'll get a forecast that's provided by um, by IBM. And in some cases, that's sort of the the what fills in since we use them um, for some of the back-end stuff. But at the end of the day, if you're in that market's area, if you're in Philadelphia and you've got that app, you're getting a forecast from our meteorologist that has the benefit of all of the computer data, the analysis, and the expertise and the experience of the meteorologists that are actually, you know, putting the forecast together. Uh, what we find is that um, the best forecast, especially for big events, when you think about the sort of events where you're going to have to alter your plans and especially the ones that are life threatening, whether that's snow or severe weather or hurricanes or that sort of thing. Um, we find that the computer models, the raw model data can, can sometimes point you in the right direction, but it's not good enough. There's details that sometimes they don't get right. Uh, sometimes they get the, the details, but they're, they look right, but they're actually completely wrong. Um, and so having a human sort of over the loop to help, clean that up a little bit to identify those things and to, frankly to flag some of the weaknesses and some of the the modeling systems there was a, a well-known bug a couple of years ago where one of the big major global modeling systems that uh, would generate snow forecasts and it was cranking out these just crazy numbers 
Well, the problem was the model wasn't actually generating that as snow. It was part of how the model was accumulating snow and it was a bug. And meteorologists looking at that would be able to identify that and go, well, that's you know, sort of the metadata around the model data. We know that that's not actually what's happening. We can sort of peel back the layers and say, well, here's what's actually going on. And here's why we're getting this crazy number. Here's what we actually think is going to happen, you know, on the ground. And I had a, a, I was working with a local TV station here in Raleigh and the station also, the company that owns the station also owns a, a sports radio platform. And a couple of the sports radio guys were like, oh man, you know, dark sky's calling for, you know, 12 inches of snow and you just shut down the schools. And I went on the, they had me on the air and I said, it's not going to happen. I'll eat my hat. We get more than, you know, two inches of snow and we want to get like an inch and a half. And so they come call me back on to talk about that. I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is their process. And for better or for worse, Dark Sky, their approach has been, we're going to just suck all of this data in. We're going to throw it into a pot. We're going to smush it all together and see what sticks mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of what flows to the top. And that's going to be our forecast approach. Um, and that works really well in a lot of cases, especially when you've got a lot of agreement on, you know, by the, the model sources, but also in, in fairly quiet or fairly well-behaved weather systems. Where that can become problematic is either when there's some known issue with how models handle certain situations, which in this case, that snow case was an example of that, um, or in cases where the models are just can't quite capture what's happening because it's just so unusual. Um, and that's an issue where when we look at ensembles, when we take a, a model and we tweak it 50 different ways and then run it, if all of those tend to agree, then we know the atmosphere is in a very predictable state and we can have a lot of confidence in the forecast that the model's coming up with. But at the same time, you assume that 50 different runs of the model is enough to capture every possibility or at least sort of identify the, the domain of possibilities about how bad or how good something could be. And sometimes what we find is that our ensembles are not, uh, they're not dispersive enough. They don't actually go, they're not as crazy as they need to be to help the ensemble means sort of, you know, point you in the right direction. And so that's where, you know, having, uh, you know, somebody to sort of help you over your shoulder to sort of help guide. And especially when it comes to specific decisions, like, you know, my kids having a wedding next weekend, do I need to rent a tent because it's going to be outside or are we going to be fine out, you know, standing in the sun, that kind of thing. And that's where I think, you know, meteorology is, is shifting um, to help provide support for those kinds of decisions, taking all of this data that we've got at our fingertips and helping to, you know, help people make better and more informed decisions. Most of the time, whether it's an umbrella or not, do I need to take the car or can I walk today? Those are the kinds of decisions that, you know, most folks are going to make most of the time and, and there's really not a whole lot of, there's not a lot of money on the line as it were. Um, but what we find is when there's you know, lives at stake or when there's, you know, big dollars on the line, sometimes having the expertise over your shoulder can really pay for itself. Yeah, that's really uh, interesting. Brian, do you feel like I have zero idea of the answer to this question, but is would there be a way for you to hook in to a more humanistic approach like what Nate's describing, like local um, stations or anything like that? Or is it like, not really something you can do because it's not really an open API type of thing. Yeah, I mean, I would need uh, to have some kind of API to be able to hook into something like that or have some kind of partnership with stations like that. I mean, that, I would love to have something like that uh, at some point in the future. I think that would be amazing uh, because having that that human touch on the forecast really does 
is helpful. Just having some computer model running everything for everybody uh, isn't as, as good as, as having a, a human look at it and verify it and, and add their touch to it. I, I think that that would be amazing to, to add to the app at some point in the future. They could figure out a, a way to make that happen. And there's some companies that are, are doing that. I mean, if you think about um, you know, some of the larger weather data API providers, in some cases, there is some human intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, may not be in the loop. It may be over the loop a little bit in sort of a, a QC-type sense where you know, we're identifying, well, that's clearly not going to happen, so I'm just going to disregard this particular solution or uh, you know, sort of cast it out or... Um, one really great example of this is the radar network that we have across the United States is fantastic. But one thing where it can get fooled sometimes is on quiet, calm nights where you get an inversion to set up in the atmosphere, where instead of it getting colder as you go up through the atmosphere, at some point it gets warmer. And that has some interesting effects on things like propagation of radio waves and stuff like that. And that affects how radars work. And sometimes it can look like it's raining when it's really not, if you're just looking at the raw radar data and you're not you know, comfortable reinterpreting it um, the way a meteorologist would. Well, in some cases, there are companies where they're, they've developed either a process, whether it's humans doing it or a computer-guided process, where they go in and actually filter that out and just sort of hand-draw areas around it, filter it out. Uh, and that's a, a thing that, uh, you know, one way that you can introduce some humanity into the loop um, and help improve the the model data forecast. So that's one place where humans can fit. And then I think the other place where the humans can fit is sort of at the end where you have all this weather data, you have all this forecast information, and then sitting down with somebody sort of one, in some cases it's one-on-one, you know, picking up the phone and calling. And, and one of the things that I do, I'm actually wearing my Mincy State shirt. One of the things that I do uh, during the fall is I work with uh, the athletics department and public safety at NC State University for football games. So we bring 60,000 people together um, into Carter-Finley Stadium on game day. And if there's bad weather, they're going to have to make decisions about whether or not we need to evacuate, whether we need to stop the game, whether we need to send people back to their cars, you know, that sort of thing, whether it's lightning or other types of severe weather. And what they found is that, well, you know, in that moment, it's helpful to have a meteorologist in the room, uh, to borrow the line from Hamilton, in the room where it happens, um, to interpret all of this weather data and then to be able to tell them the threat of X is going to arrive in 15 minutes or it's going to arrive in 30 minutes. And it's my job to provide that information and also be aware enough of, of the evacuation protocols and what our options are. They will make the decision, but it's my job to sort of be aware of all of that and provide that information to them so that they can make that decision because you know, stopping the game has all kinds of of you know impacts. Some of them financial and some otherwise. Plus, you know, if you're talking about moving sixty thousand people, there are only a couple of places where we can fit people indoors. Some of those may not be suitable for the types of weather we're talking about. Our practice practice facility, which is right next to the football stadium, would be great if you if all we're worried about is lightning. But if it's high winds, that may not be the best place to to put people. And then keeping in mind that some of these people may have parked a mile or two away. They took a rideshare shuttle and there's nowhere for them to go. Uh, it's not like they can just walk out of the stadium and go straight to their car. So thinking about that, the time leads and all that kind of stuff to process all that. And that I think is, those are the kinds of decisions where 
you know, having a meteorologist or you know, somebody trained in, in all of this, much like, you know, if I've got a cold, maybe Google hit WebMD and figure <laughs> something out and that's going to be fine. You know, you take a, you know, stay at home, have some chicken soup, don't go outside, that sort of thing. Well, now that we're, now COVID's been a thing for a year. Well, I need professional help to determine whether this is a cold or whether it's COVID. Or maybe I've got something else going on and I need a doctor to actually look at all of my numbers and to say, you know, yes, this is a cold or no, it's something worse and we need to, you know, maybe intervene a little bit more. So again, it really is a, this range of decisions that people might have to make in a given day or in a given lifetime. And some of those are the high end decisions and some of them are, are not. Uh, and it's not to say that even on the high end that, um, you know, app data and model data can't be valuable. It certainly can be in the, in the hands of somebody who's been trained. And one thing I, I love about the weather enterprise more so than, than many other industries is that a lot of this data is now publicly available. Um, you know, the weather service runs all of its models and it puts the data in the public domain and you're allowed to do whatever you want to with it. Um, and a lot of modeling data is like that. A lot of weather guidance is like that. Radar data is the same thing. The data have been democratized. And so now it's on us to democratize the, the, the knowledge and the ability to interpret that data. Um, and again, in some cases, you're still going to want to have a meteorologist in the room. But in other cases, I want people to, to be able to look at this and, and to understand it you know, the way that I do, the people that want to. To your point, Will, going back to the beginning of the podcast, not everybody's into weather you know, like we are. And that's okay. Um, that makes, that means that people like me and, and my colleagues and people like Brian, we have jobs, you know, we have things that we can do because not everybody's going to be into it like we are. And that's fine. It's perfectly fine. Um, but for those that are to make sure that we can democratize that knowledge and, and help them, you know, learn as much as they want to about it. I love it. I, I really appreciate that perspective with the, the kind of information that I try to get across on on these episodes. So that's a really interesting, like behind the scenes, if you will, uh, even makes me think of some things I didn't really consider before, um, from, from, you know, a meteorological, meteorological, meteorological perspective. Yeah. <laughs> um, well guys, I think we're about at time. I, I so appreciate, uh, you joining me today, uh, and, and getting to share your experiences and I think that uh, a lot of people are going to enjoy it as well. Um, where can people find you guys? Is there anything you want to share or, you know, different platforms or the stage is yours? <laughs> Brian, I mean, there? I guess you can find uh, Carrot Weather on the app store. You just search for uh, Carrot Weather. And uh, that's my main app now, so. Cool. I'm probably easiest, most easily found on Twitter. I'm at NSJ, just three letters, got one of those rare uh, mm -hmm. three-letter IDs on Twitter. Uh, just find me there, and I can point you in the right direction. Um, and I show, you know, shout out to all of my, my colleagues with the NBC and Telemundo-owned stations across the country that uh, are the ones, you know, day in and day out, you know, doing the forecasting and serving their local communities. At the end of the day, that's, that's why we're here. You know, I think most people... Um, within the weather enterprise, we're in it because we're fascinated by the weather and we're driven to to help people to be passionate about the weather, to make better decisions, to save lives, that sort of thing. And I think that's that's why most people are in this business. It's it's not a business where you're going to get rich necessarily, um, but it's a business where people you know can help other people, and that's that's why we're in it. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you guys so much, and uh, I'll see you on various different platforms, Twitter, etc. 
where we can uh, talk a little bit more about the weather and maybe you can come on again for some other uh, pertinent topic in the future. Sounds good. Thanks for having cool. me. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me.